Thanks for being here. Uh, my name is Peter Gettler. It's my privilege and honor to be president of the Cato Institute. And I uh, want to thank everyone for joining us today. I want to thank especially those who have those gold-lettered name tags that say Cato Sponsor, because you're the generous folks that, that make our work possible. We're, we, uh, we really appreciate it. And these days, uh, when everyone's decrying inequality, we don't want anyone to feel different. So next year, if you'd like one of those Cato Sponsor name tags, all you need to do is uh, write a check to Cato, and we'll make sure next year you don't feel left out. Uh, but before we get going, I'm just going to cue a short video that will lead into our comments. Cato Institute. Cato Institute. Cato Institute. The Cato Institute. Anytime something comes up in uh, Washington where I have a question about what might uh, libertarian policymakers uh, want to consider, I'll look to Cato Institute scholars. Over the last 35 years, Cato's Monetary Conference has more than earned its status as the place where serious thinkers and doers can develop, test, and market ideas for a stronger economic foundation. Reality is that the Cato Institute has been a voice uh, for restraint and non-intervention over the past two decades, one of the strongest voices. Uh, and on that, uh, there is, in my view, large growing agreement in the United States Congress. Thank you all for the chance to speak at the start of what looks to be a really fascinating conference. I always enjoy the vigorous de debate that Cato events fosters. Well, thank you uh, so much, uh, David, for the uh, kind introduction and invitation to participate. Thanks as well to Cato for your advocacy uh, over the many years across many fields, including ours. We are really good friends, and we do a lot of kind of swapping accounts of ideas, and it's not just, by the way, on intelligence, that's what gets most attention, but taxes and transportation, a variety of different issues. And that's why I want to thank Cato, because Cato has always been policy and ideas driven. One expert at the Libertarian Cato Institute who has analyzed the judge's record in detail found that Judge Kavanaugh is a, quote, big step forward for constitutional liberty, close quote. According to the Cato Institute, for anyone earning less than $29,700 a year, costs would rise by over $4,000, 4, 4000 out of less than 30. Michael Cannon of Cato said, the House Republican leadership bill does not replace Obamacare. It merely applies a new coat of paint to a building that Republicans themselves have already condemned. Jefferson said, when the people fear the government, there is tyranny. When the government fears the people, there is liberty. Think about that statement. Ask yourself which side's winning right now. Right? I mean, think about it. And uh, that is what Cato is about, making sure that the, the second part of that statement is the one that actually rings true for this, uh, this great country. So we, we appreciate that. I'm very happy to be here today. I, and I can't miss the opportunity to say that the quality of work that is being put out by Cato now is the highest it has ever been. Thanks. Thanks a lot. You know, we're really proud of that video because um, in the nearly four years I've now been living in Washington, much to my chagrin, um, I, I've really learned that the respect that Cato has from people across the, the spectrum is really genuine and, and really well-earned. I don't think there's, uh, there's really anyone, a policymaker, 
um, a staffer or anyone in Washington that doesn't respect the integrity and the credibility of Cato. And that's because we have a reputation for being principled, for being independent, being nonpartisan. And in a world where everyone talks about how much they love freedom and then tells you, whether it's the red team or the blue team, they tell you all the ways we're afraid we need to cut back freedom or some bad things are going to happen. You know, I like to think, uh, I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a public intellectual. I like to think of things in simple terms. At Cato, we like to take our liberty the same way the founders did, straight, with no chasers and no mixers. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons that we've gained so much respect across the political and philosophical spectrum. I was reminded of this recently when, you know, we have a, a, a platform called humanprogress.org. And it's to remind people that even though we're always complaining about how bad the world is and how tough we have it, that we're living in a wondrous and wonderful time. It's never been a better time to be alive as a human being. Uh, in fact, some of our work from the Human Progress platform was tweeted out last week by Bill Gates to his 45 million followers. And uh, we got a, an incoming call a few months ago, and we got a visit. Mike Milken wanted to come and, uh, and meet with us to talk about the work we're doing at Human Progress. We had a great conversation where we talked to him about Cato and the work we were doing and our various policy positions. And near the end, he said, in a way that was really intended as a, as a strong compliment, he says, you know, Cato defies characterization. And that's really the reason that my family and I came to Cato as contributors almost 20 years ago. It's because I spent half of my life believing that if we only elected the right parties or the right politicians, We'd start living in a world with less government, more freedom, and that spending would at last long be cut. And I couldn't have been more wrong. And that's why uh, my family and I began to support Cato, because we felt it's the uh, advocacy of the liberty-based philosophy, the advocacy of uh, principled you know, policy positions that are based on that, that freedom that, that, uh, that make the difference. And about five years after we started contributing to Cato, I got a real affirmation of that decision when, uh, and, and I was seething when Tom DeLay in 2005 said that after 11 years of a Republican Congress, they had things cut down to size and there wasn't anything left to cut in the government. You know, the stakes are pretty high. 27 years ago today, my wife and I welcomed our first children. Our twins were born. Uh, whenever I meet people who have young children, I say, boy, you know, I miss, miss having little kids. My wife is quick to rebut and say, I like them now. <laughs> but, you know, we're here. We contribute to Cato. We decided to join Cato as employees and part of the community because we care very much about what kind of, and I've said this here before to this group, we care very much about what kind of world our kids and our grandkids are going to be living in. And uh, think about the world that we're giving to them. We now have a very robust economy that, you know, depending on, you might quibble about the, uh, the uh, workforce participation rate, but we're basically at full employment and we're running deficits of a trillion dollars. And neither party really seems to care about it. And we're just gonna go on piling another trillion dollars of debt on these future generations year after year. And uh, regardless of whether the parties are willing to abdicate responsibility for that. At Cato, we never will be. And so the ethos we bring to Cato is that since the challenges to liberty aren't going to be fading anytime soon, 
we want to do a better job confronting those challenges each and every day. We want to perform better. We want to get more impact and influence out of the resources you're entrusting to us each and every day. And I believe that we're doing it. We don't aspire to be the best performing nonprofit in the world. We want to be, go toe to toe with any organization in terms of performance, strategy, and execution on that strategy. And I do believe we're doing it. We think that the government has the most to fear from both ideas and action. And that's why from the Cato Institute, we're dedicated to the idea that our government is gonna get both ideas and action from Cato. We will never abandon our important role that our scholarship, that our principle, that our dedication to our philosophy plays in bending the long-term arc of ideas more in the direction of freedom. It's that dedication to our intellectual leadership and our scholarship that caused George Will to dub Cato the foremost upholder of liberty in the nation that's the foremost upholder of liberty. And that's a responsibility we'll never abdicate. But at the same time, when opportunities exist for us to bring tangible change to the policy environment, we're not going to uh, fail to exploit those opportunities. I think many of you might be familiar with uh, a great example of that approach. Three weeks ago, we filed a lawsuit against the SEC. We basically found a guy who had written a book. He felt his life had been ruined, that on trumped-up financial charges, he was forced, coerced into a civil settlement by the SEC and then coerced into pleading guilty and accepting a 21-month prison sentence when he was threatened with 250 years in prison if he went to trial. And most of the settlements that our government executes with people who accept a civil settlement contain a lifetime gag order where they're not allowed to talk about how they've been treated. And in the United States, even a convicted murderer has the ability to decry the treatment he or she has received from the justice system. And we think it's important that people who claim they've been coerced into settlements by the government deserve the right to speak out as well so that we as citizens know what our government is up to. So we've committed to publish this fellow's book and because of the gag order, we're prohibited from doing so. So we filed suit against the SEC in order to, uh, to be able to free anyone who signed a settlement with these gag orders to, uh, to speak out about what has happened to them. Nor are we shy, um, shyly, meetings like this are really great to bring like-minded people together, to share ideas, to engage in fellowship, and to recharge for the mission ahead. But in the time that I've been contributing to liberty-focused organizations and in the nearly four years I've been at Cato and in Washington, while we will never stop doing things like this, I think it's really important to know that, recognize that we're not going to change the world if we're just talking to each other and preaching to the choir. And at Cato, we have no interest in winning the championship for the best preacher to the choir. What we want to do is we aspire to be the number one organization for bringing the ideas and virtues of liberty to the people who are not familiar with them, haven't fully accepted them, haven't been yet been converted, but we feel are persuadable. In the current environment, we think that we've just got kind of hardcore red team, hardcore blue team, and there's no talking to one another. 
The point of fact is, you know, more than 40% of Americans, while they might gravitate to one party or another, are unaffiliated voters. And so we think there's a lot to play for. And we have a lot cooking in this regard to make sure that our message gets out to many more people, not just those who agree with us. Some of the things that we're doing, you'll be hearing more in the months and years ahead, but uh, as, a, uh, as an old Wall Street person, I like to say I've gone short. Uh, we've we've uh, booked a big block of hotel rooms in Washington for this summer, and we plan to bring up to 200 educators to Cato for a program where we want to, them to be exposed to uh, all ideas across the spectrum, but also we want to play a role in trying to cool the temperature of the public discourse because we're of a view that if people are just yelling at one another, fighting, and relying on sound bites and put downs, that's not an environment that is conducive to the liberty agenda. Because to explain how people live their best lives in prosperity, free from material want, in peace, through liberty and freedom, that's a nuanced sell. You know, you need to have a thoughtful discussion with someone to convince them of that. And in this environment, too many people are reveling in, uh, in partisan combat, and I don't think our, our view is gonna carry the day unless we defuse that and bring our message to, uh, to those who are, are, not, are not necessarily in the choir. Um, and and uh, that's something that we're, we're pretty committed to, and again, if, uh, if we're gonna try to earn any championships, I think that's where we're, uh, where we're gonna try to do it. But one of the things I think we also have to recognize is that even people who broadly agree with one another, I think virtually everyone in this room believes in liberty and limited government, but yet we spend so much time quibbling with one another about, well, hey, I think Cato's a great organization, but I disagree with your position on this policy or that policy, or you're debating with your neighbor about how they're wrong about this or that, and I just don't think that's really, uh, really constructive. In fact, it was crystallized for me when I met with uh, a gentleman who uh, supports a number of liberty-focused organizations, and he said, you know, I really like Cato, and you guys are kind of on the target for me, but I don't agree with every position that you take, and I would rather fully align myself and most generously contribute to an organization that, for me, is a bullseye, where I agree with everything they're advocating. And my response was, it's exactly the wrong approach because what you shouldn't care most about is how many people we can get on the target and whether or not they're all sitting on the bullseye. And I think especially with young people, um, we are making a huge mistake if because of the kind of instruction they're getting in high schools and colleges that we are writing off the future generation as a bunch of socialists. We need to engage them. Our research and study shows that they are very receptive to libertarian ideas, and that if there's a portal through which we're gonna bring these generations to freedom and to loving liberty, it's gonna be through the philosophy of libertarianism because they're very receptive to it. And I would rather have millions of young people on the target, loving liberty, believing in limited government, and not quibbling about whether we have disagreements on two or three policy areas. I would rather have millions of people on the target rather than 50,000 people on the bullseye. And uh, I think that's one of the things that, uh, that Cato is, uh, is really all about. Why we're so principled, why we are studiously uh, nonpartisan and independent, 
and why I think we're one of the very few organizations that earn such praise from uh, folks across the spectrum. So thank you so much for making that possible. Thank you so much for uh, your generous support that allows us to, uh, to do our important work and that supports my, uh, you know, I'm just a relative newcomer to the policy world, but my outstanding colleagues who have dedicated their entire lives and careers to our mission, our important mission, uh, I am so grateful to them and so grateful to you for allowing us to, uh, to set them up in, in those careers. So thanks so much. And uh, we hope everyone enjoys the program today. And any feedback, always appreciated. Uh, when I said we're trying to get better every day, that includes hearing your feedback about our program, our work, et cetera. So it's a real pleasure now for me to introduce my colleague, senior fellow Michael Tanner, who has been at Cato for a long time and has produced you know, a stack of work that is, uh, is pretty impressive. Michael uh, is known to many as probably the foremost advocate in the United States for the last 20 years for reform of entitlements and particularly Social Security privatization. He's written many books, in, in, including Leviathan on the Right, which was basically, uh, when, I, when I mentioned people like Tom DeLay talking about how much they had cut government down, that in that book, Michael really called out big government conservatism. Healthy Competition was co-written by Michael and his colleague, Michael Cannon, who is our, our healthcare uh, policy analyst. Uh, healthy Competition talks about how we can have a better, more accessible, more affordable healthcare system uh, moving in more of a free market direction away from government control. Going for Broke was a book Michael wrote two or three years ago, which uh, talks about the dynamic I mentioned earlier about adding trillions and trillions of debt as the years go by, not to mention the very frightening unfunded liabilities of the entitlement programs he's worked so hard to reform. But his most recent book is called The Inclusive Economy, Bringing Wealth to America's Poor. And I think it's a very interesting read. I would encourage you, um, the, th the three authors today, Michael P.G. O'Rourke and Michael Smirkanish, we have their books available for purchase outside. But Michael said he's kind of reassessed his approach to poverty, that it's not just about debating poverty programs, and it's not just demanding that the poor pull themselves up by the bootstraps. He has highlighted all of the obstacles that policy mistakes have placed in front of the poor and have inhibited their ability to reach a better life. Things like government control of the education system, the criminal justice system that can blow up someone's life when they're 20 years old, just starting out. Uh, regressive regulation that, that uh, reduces economic mobility and the ability of lower and middle income people to build a better life for themselves. And uh, this work has really gotten support from across the spectrum. If you look at the back of one of the books, you see people like Andy Stern of the SEIU and scholars at Brookings have praised Michael's work as being very eye-opening to them. And it's also earned him a uh, high level of interest from across the spectrum. A story I like to tell is a couple of uh, months ago, a Democratic congressman caught wind of the book, said he wanted to meet Michael. So Michael went to his office, spent an hour with this congressman, which is a lot of time to get in front of a member. Um, and during the conversation, this fellow said to Michael, you know, you libertarians get a bad rap. You guys are making a lot of sense. 
at the end of it, he said, hey, maybe I'm a libertarian, <laughs> which uh, I think, you know, that's the kind of hyperbole politicians are, uh, are, are uh, you know, um, you know, can't, can't resist. But uh, it's my pleasure to welcome to the podium Michael Tanner. Well, thank you, Peter, and thank all of you. Thank you for coming out today, and thank you for support. And, and I, I really mean that, your, particularly your financial support, but also your ideas and your criticism. Uh, without all of that, none of what I could do would be possible. So I, I want to personally offer my thanks to you for all of it and all that you give us here at Cato. Um, let me begin in terms of talking about po poverty by just pointing out the fact that despite some of what you hear about how stingy we are as a country, we spend an enormous amount fighting poverty in this country. Uh, federal government alone has more than 100 different anti-poverty programs, about 70 of which provide benefits directly to individuals, and the remainder provide benefits to poor communities. And on these programs, the federal government spends roughly $700 billion last year. And state and local governments kicked in another $300 billion, meaning we spent about a trillion dollars fighting poverty last year. And since 1965, when Lyndon Johnson declared war on poverty, we've spent about $26 trillion in real dollars fighting poverty. And the question is, what have we gotten for this money? Now, the fact is, we actually have reduced poverty levels significantly by the various definitions of what poverty is. We've actually lowered poverty rates significantly. I mean, even the federal government can't spend a trillion dollars a year and not accomplish something. <laughs> you, I mean, you could fly over the country in an airplane and shovel a trillion dollars out of the back of it and actually reduce poverty. I mean, so. But is that really enough? I mean, is that all we should do? If you look at sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you see this down at the bottom, there's the, you know, food and shelter, stuff like that, and we do a pretty good job of providing that. But at the top of that pyramid is, you know, people who are becoming fully actualized human beings, human flourishing, the idea that people should thrive and be able to achieve everything that they can do with their talents and abilities, that they should be self-sufficient, that they should have control over their own lives and their own destinies. And I defy you to go to some place like Lauderdale Lakes or to uh, Sandtown in Baltimore or East Fresno, California or Owsley, Kentucky, the poorest neighborhood and community in, a, in America, and look at folks in those communities and say, are they thriving? Are they achieving everything they can? Are they masters of their fate? And the answer would clearly be no. So I wanted to look at something different and say, is there a better way that we can fight poverty in this country than what we've been doing, which is simply throwing money at the problem? And I started at the beginning in this book, and I said, look, why are people poor? I mean, you wouldn't, uh, you know, if you were a doctor, you wouldn't start treating people until you actually diagnosed their illness, right? So I wanted to look at why people are poor, and I found that there were basically two competing theories on the left and the right about poverty. On the right, people basically said, it's the poor's fault. They blame the poor. And they said the poor make bad choices, bad decisions. There's this culture of poverty. And they point to particularly something called the success sequence, which looks at it and says, look, and this is true, if you finish high school and then you get a job and you don't have children until you get married, 
your chances of being poor are very slim. All of those are true individually, and as a whole, if you do all three of those things, the likelihood of being in poverty are very, are, are very, very slim. So they look at these and they say, okay, clearly the poor are making bad choices and bad behavior. They're, they're not doing these things, and that's why people are poor. The left looks at poverty and says, if the right blames the poor themselves, the left says, no, we blame society. And they look at things like racism and gender-based discrimination and economic dislocation and say these larger societal issues, these systemic issues, if you will, that's what ultimately leads to poverty. That if you look at the abysmal history we have in this country of treating people of color and women, you could say that those things contribute to where people are today and leave people behind, leave people in poverty. So I asked, which of these is correct? And ultimately, I concluded that both were to some degree, and that neither was to a large degree. I mean, clearly, the right has a point that you can't strip poor people of agency and pretend that their decisions don't matter, that there are no consequences to their actions, that they are nothing but chaff blown by the wind, permanent victims of society, and nothing they do ever matters. That's an incredibly demeaning way to treat the poor. But you also have to take into account the context in which choices and decisions are made. What, uh, what economists refer to as the constraints on our decisions. And the simple fact is, if you're a poor black child growing up in inner city Baltimore, you face a very different level of circumstances than if you are a white kid growing up in the suburbs of Chevy, Ch in Chevy Chase, Maryland, let's say. You know, if you live in an area where there are no jobs, and their schools are terrible, and the police hassle you every time you step foot outside your door, and you look around and you say, if people really do study and they do all these things and they behave exactly they're supposed to, they're still going to face all sorts of discrimination and maybe they're not going to get hired for that job and they're still going to get arrested for things that, uh, that white kids wouldn't get arrested for, you're going to behave and make very different choices. So both of these have something to them. But both of these are also missing a much bigger point and much bigger villain in the debate. And as I looked more and more into this, I found that the real problem wasn't the poor themselves, and it wasn't society, it was the government. And that if we really wanted to fight poverty in this country, what we should be doing is tell the government to stop making people poor. So what I had laid out in the book was five areas where I thought that we could implement libertarian solutions to government policies that are pushing people into poverty. These were, number one, criminal justice reform. The fact is that our criminal justice system is prejudiced against low-income people and people of color at every step from the top to the bottom, and that this has a significant impact on poverty that you can commit an offense, something that shouldn't even be an offense, when you're young and end up with a criminal record that 20 or 30 years later is following you around and preventing you from getting a job. That you can simply look at the number of young black men who are in the criminal justice system who are basically taken out of the job market, taken out of the marriage pool, if you will. William Julius Wilson suggests there's a million and a half young black men who are either in jail, probation, or have a criminal record that renders them unemployable or unmarriageable. Now, 
Conservatives have a long time pointed out that poor women shouldn't have children if they're not married. And they say, we need to encourage marriage. Who the heck are these women supposed to marry? It's not like there's this giant pool of would-be computer geniuses that are sitting out there waiting to marry them. If you, take them. if you take the men in these communities and you lock them up for something like having marijuana, or, my God, remember Eric Garner in New York who was killed because he sold an untaxed cigarette. If we lock people up for things that shouldn't be crimes and we tag them with a criminal record for the rest of their lives, we shouldn't be surprised that we create large pools of poverty. Scholars at Vanderbilt University estimate that if we had criminal justice reform in this country, we could reduce the poverty rate through that step alone by 20%. Second, we need to reform the government-run school system that is leaving so many people behind. It's not a matter of spending money. We spend tons of money on education. In fact, we keep spending more and more money without getting any better results. You can look at school systems like Washington, D.C., or Chicago, or Baltimore, or L.A., some of the worst school systems in the country, and find that they spend more per student than any school system in the nation. What we really need if we want to reform our school system is, is choice and competition. And we can argue about what the best way to do that is, charter schools, vouchers, tuition tax credits. I think that's going from least best to best. But we, we can look at the various ways to do this. But what we really need to do is make sure that the school system operates for the children and that the parents are in control and that the school system isn't at the beck and call of the teachers unions in this country, which resist any sort of reform. Number three is we need to reduce the cost of housing in this country. You know, the poor spend a disproportionate amount of their income on housing. About 40% of their income on average goes to housing. And this causes a lot of problems. First of all, if you're spending a lot of money on housing, you don't have a lot of money for other things, uh, obviously. But second, it also locks the poor into bad neighborhoods because they can't afford to move to an area that might have better school or less crime or more jobs. I mean, can you imagine a poor person trying to move into Silicon Valley, no matter what their skills are? But the cost of housing is often driven by government policies, in particular zoning and land use policies. Zoning in some cities like New York and San Francisco can add 50% to the cost of housing and rent in those areas. In cities like Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, it can add 30%. And across the country, on average, it's about 10% added to the cost of housing through these government policies. If we really want to make it affordable housing in this country, it's not a matter of having more subsidies that's going to chase ever higher costs. It's a matter of getting rid of those regulations that can reduce the cost of housing to where the poor can afford them and where the poor can have mobility and move into the areas where those jobs are. Fourth, we need to increase savings among the poor. Now, this is sort of axiomatic, but we kind of forget about the fact that the opposite of poverty is wealth. We really want to be able to encourage poor people to save money and to accumulate wealth. But our policies are often perversely designed to encourage consumption and discourage savings. And that is everything from banking laws, where we're so terrified of terrorism and drug money laundering and things like that, that we require all sorts of special rules and identification in order to open a bank account. You know, people worry in this country about whether or not you have IDs for voting. The fact is about 20% of poor people don't have sufficient identification to open a bank account in this country. 
And just imagine what it means if you can't open a bank account. It means you can't borrow. It means you can't save. It means that you have to go to these check cashing places that charge you know, high fees and all those sort of things. It means you're walking around all the time with wads of money in your pockets so that you get robbed or the police pick you up because they think you're a drug courier because you have $500 in your pocket. Uh, all the problems that causes. It's also in our welfare programs that actually penalize you for saving. We're fine if you spend your money. If you get a welfare check and you spend every penny of it, hey, that's cool. But if you put some of that money away so that your kids might go to a better school, we're going to take away your check. If you have a car, we're going to count that so you can go to a job. We're going to have it count that as an asset and take away your check. Very, I mean, it just seems like very wrong-headed set of policies. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, we need to have inclusive economic growth. We need to have economic growth to begin with. Nothing has lifted more people out of poverty than economic growth. I mean, throughout most of mankind's history, man was desperately poor. You know, there was a small aristocracy that was slightly less starving than the people below them. But basically, we were abjectly in miserable poverty throughout most of mankind's history. And then about 300 years ago, something happened, and human wealth began to increase, and people began to rise out of poverty. And that something that happened was modern free market capitalism. You know, we, and it still happens today, it's still the, as economic growth, it does lift all boats. You know, the, the poor today live lives that would have been envied by the Carnegies and the Vanderbilts 100 years ago. But that economic growth will really only lift people out of poverty if it's inclusive, if everybody can participate in a growing economy. And that means we need to remove those barriers, those rules and regulations that prevent poor people from becoming part of a growing economy. Things like occupational licensing laws, you know, today, somewhere between 25 and 30 or 35 percent of all jobs in this country require you to get permission from the government to practice your profession. And I'm not talking about doctors and lawyers. I'm talking about braiding hair or beauticians or funeral attendants that require you to get a, uh, to get a license from the government to practice your job. Those things lock in privilege for the people at the top of the income scale and lock out people at the bottom of the income scale from participating in the economy. Occupational zoning laws are another one. You can't open up a small business in your living room and start doing people's makeup or whatever it is because you're violating some zoning ordinance or another. Minimum wage laws that prevent people from getting that first job and getting in at the bottom of the income scale so they can get the skills and earn their way up the income scale, because nothing succeeds like a job. If we don't remove these barriers to economic inclusion, then we are never going to allow the poor to become full participants from the economy and get the gains from economic growth that are adhering to society overall. What we really need to do is look at what is preventing poor people from becoming rich. You know, uh, Nelson Mandela says poverty is man-made. I think that's wrong. I think poverty is the natural state of mankind. What is really man-made is prosperity. And by implementing powerful free market libertarian solutions that revolve more liberty, more freedom, less government, we can create prosperity that goes to everyone, including the poorest people in our society. Thank you all very much.
<clears throat> Happy to take a few questions if there are any out there. See anybody? I can't see. I, I got light shining in my eyes, so I can't hear anything. So go ahead. Is there, and if there's another one following up on that, yeah, can you wave and they'll get a microphone to you as well? Was uh, criminal ju criminal justice? Yeah. And recently, there was uh, some laws passed in Washington that spoke to that. Did they do it adequately? Well, the, 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 it was called the First Step Act, and it's a very small step in the right direction. It did a number of things that I think were, were good. It sort of retroactively applied some of the sentencing changes that had to do with the difference between crack and cocaine, and where crack was once about 100 times bigger sentence than for powdered cocaine. They, they sort of retroactively uh, went back and changed some of the sentencing on that. They applied more good time credits for people who are uh, to get out of jail or if they're participating in rehabilitative programs to learn skills and edu get educated and so on. They, some simple things like you no longer, under this law, you can no longer shackle women when they're giving birth in federal prisons. Uh, you know, things, things like that you think were common sense. But on the other hand, most criminal justice issues are actually at the state level. So this applied to federal prisons. It didn't apply to state prisons. So you need to actually implement things. I understand there's actually a First Step like Act type of program, uh, bill that's making it through the Florida legislature now. Things like that need to, need to be taking place at the state level to really have impact. Yeah, in theory, I'm actually sympathetic simply because the current system is so badly broken. Uh, you know, with 100 different programs, all of which have different eligibility levels, different work requirements, I mean, it's, you know, people who are situated in identical situations get different sets of benefits because one knows how to work the paperwork and the other one doesn't. Uh, we don't know which ones are working, which ones aren't. It's not very transparent. It's extremely paternalistic. Uh, we sort of treat people like an allow, you know, like they're five years old getting their allowance. We say, well, this money's for housing. But this money over here is for food. You can't eat a little less and get a slightly bigger apartment. That, that's wrong. You've got to do it exactly the way we say you do it. I think the idea of giving people cash and telling them that they're responsible for budgeting for themselves like everyone else is probably a good idea. The problem is it's simply unaffordable. Uh, if you give it to everybody, it costs about $4 trillion, uh, which, you know, I mean, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez probably thinks that's wonderful, but I don't know of anyone else in Washington who does. Uh, Yeah, one there and then one over there. I would just like to know when Lyndon uh, Johnson put in the bills about the husband or the significant other not being in the home <clears throat> so yeah. that they could qualify for aid, what steps could be taken to bring back to those people a family again as it had been prior to that? Yeah, it was called the man in the house rule and essentially it, uh, it said that you couldn't have essentially the father of your children living with you uh, while you receive benefits. Uh, at, that's been largely done away with, not completely, but it's largely been done away with. You still have a problem if that husband or that father of your children earns an income, because it may, if you get married, his income counts against your benefit levels, 
and you may lose your, uh, you lose your eligibility. That's a problem uh, with work as well. As soon as you start earning income, you begin to lose your benefits. We talk a lot about high marginal tax rates in Washington, and uh, you know they certainly are, uh, and discourage investment and uh, innovation by the wealthy. Uh, but the highest marginal tax rates anyone faces in this country is actually someone who leaves welfare for work. Uh, as soon as you uh, begin to earn a dollar, you pay, in, pay taxes on the first dollar you earn with the payroll tax. You also begin to immediately lose your benefits, and you incur the expenses of going to work, transportation, child care, and so on. Uh, you can actually end up financially worse off by taking a job than if you are collecting welfare, which seems to me to get the incentives all wrong. So right in, the, in the interest of influencing policy, even though it seems impervious to facts all too often, real-world examples of rollbacks in regulation would seem to be the best, best way to make the case. Are there any particular examples that stand out, either individually or in combination, and particularly abroad, not just in the United States? Well, I, I think there is sort of a broad bipartisan consensus on this idea of changing occupational licensure, for example, uh, that the Obama administration actually included and quoted Cato. In a, in a uh, report that their uh, Office of Management and Budget brought out uh, on the issue uh, on that. But I'll give you just one example that, of how that works. In Louisiana, if you want to be a beautician, you actually have to take a year-long course uh, before you can do that. And then you have to take a test. That test is only given twice a year and only in Monroe, Louisiana. And it's a two-day test. <laughs> So if you're a single mother trying, you know, says, hey, you know, here's a way I can make a few bucks and get off of welfare, uh, you have to take this course, buying the textbooks for the course, the course, and paying to take the course. Then you have to find transportation to Monroe, Louisiana, and get a hotel room overnight, and pay to take the test. <laughs> you know, I mean, something like that, you know, I would think we could build a broad bipartisan coalition to change. Uh, the only people who really love that are the beauticians. Thank you all very much. Really appreciate it. Take the time. <laughs>